is another episode of Dane Rants with your pal Dane Alves. Uh, this edition is going to be about basically the wonderful relationship in horror and films and directly talk about a newer director that's been out uh, with films like Hereditary and Midsommar, Ari Aster. So we're going to kind of dive into the concept of avant-garde uh, horror directors or just you know really great visual directors in general within cinema that have produced amazing movies Horror or not, but uh, before we get into all this, I want to introduce my two guests. Uh, you know, first one returning for another episode of Dane Rants, my brother Luke Alves. Thank you for uh, taking the money and you know jump, jumping on the show with us, Luke. I appreciate that. Yep, it's your family. Thanks for having me, man. <laughs> it's my family, but yeah, thanks for having me. No problem at all, and of course, uh, well, to me and Luke, because we knew about this, uh, joining us, a good friend of mine, grew up with me, one of my best friends, if you will, and family members, Alex Krieger, a uh, fellow horror fan. How are you doing, Alex? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me, Dane. Excited to be here. Good, good. Well, uh, you know, I, I think that the, at least what you will get from, say, the Academy with Oscar movies, a lot of times they un, unneedingly kind of leave out horror movies a lot. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's actually something that people have called them out for for a while. Um, I think that the director that we're going to talk about um, towards the end of this Ari Aster kind of proves that it doesn't matter if you are a great, you know, movie director. Uh, you know, if you have an eye for cinema, if you have a great editing style, if you have a great use of, of, of color and sound within your films, it can propel you into multiple directions. Uh, Ari specifically for this whole entire conversation has said that he plans on going in a very different direction from horror next. I think he was talking about doing a comedy, but I will say that I feel like avant-garde directors, you know, uh, ones that kind of have a, a different visual style than most or directors that are known throughout cinema that have that style. Basically the, the horror directors bring that, wonderful artsy style to their directing, to their editing, to their cinematography, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and just show you a neat, unique style, whether it be like a, a David Cronenberg, you know, or uh, a Toby Hooper who made, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ridley Scott with Alien, John Carpenter for the Halloween series. And then you also go to directors like Stanley Kubrick or maybe even a David Lynch way further who might not be a horror director, but his visual style definitely influenced, um, you know, but obviously Kubrick with, uh, you know, The Shining and A Clockwork Orange of just this visual style and aesthetic that you throw on. And when you get throughout the course of films, I feel like a lot of the horror movies, it, it, it doesn't just go to, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, as far as the classic director or George Romero, you know, with his awesome zombie films and their cinematic style, I wish horror was taken as seriously. And I'm glad that with people like Ari Aster, with people like Jordan Peele, you know, with people like Robert Eggers, that people seem to be taking horror a lot more serious as of lately. Uh, what, what, what do you have to say to that statement, Alex? Do you notice that people are kind of, starting to not look at horror as such a genre-focused concept within cinema? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always been a, a genre that's been um, almost oversaturated because I think it's just so easy to make a horror film um, and that hurt it 
in, in a bit, you know, because there's just, I mean, every, every week it's like you go to, you know, some of the streaming services and there's just all these films being made that, you know, it's maybe one out of 10, if that are good. Now, some people enjoy a bad horror film for, you know, the reasons of just being that it's bad, but, you know, with, with what you're saying, I do think that these newer directors, a lot of what you had mentioned, Robert Eagers and Ari Aster have brought a different, a refreshing view of horror that's a lot more serious, a lot more emotional, um, that is eternally uh, uh, scary in a sense. You know, before, you know, you think of horror, it's okay, slasher, monster, uh, possession, demons, right? And this is just, I mean, you know, if we're going to jump right into these types of movies, I mean, Hereditary alone could very easily just be a family drama, with a horror element. It really depends on how you look at it. But I do think that it is breaking its way more into mainstream get out winning uh, an Oscar was a huge step to that. And uh, in my personal opinion, Tony Collette completely got robbed and should have at least had a nomination for best actress because her performance was just something of just really was uh, underappreciated. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, this goes up more so for horror movies because, like I said, they've had a history of having rich directors tackle different concepts and really just make some amazing films. I mean, you know, I would say that I said The Shining earlier from Kubrick, but not only that, you know, William Friedkin with uh, The Exorcist and The Omen and a lot of other great directors like that have expressed some really cool concepts and gone to places. And uh, I think this is something that has happened with superhero films too. It's like they just get a nasty reputation. You don't think about your Logans or your Dark Knights. They kind of get taken off um, just because there's, you know, quote-unquote superhero films. So I think that, unfortunately, the horror genre kind of suffers from that. And honestly, it's because of a lot of, you know, styles and trends. Um, I think that we had an awesome, you know, uh, generation where we would go down to Blockbuster, just pick it based on, you know, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of stuff on the computers back then. You know, there wasn't as much information. You couldn't bring up IMDb with as much stuff. You would have to go through message boards to find out information and uh, go by your instinct of, of just a, the, the cover, the cover art on some said film to find out if you're going to get a stinker, which sometimes are great still, you know or if you're going to get something that really makes you think. And uh, I think that's the difference. But, um, yeah, I, Luke, what, what do you think about this? Do you think that horror kind of gets a bad name sometimes uh, when it comes to critics? And not, not, not really critics, but like the Academy itself and just being presented as a genre film as, as opposed to an actual in-depth look at humanity a lot of times? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with both of like what you guys were both saying. Like, it's just the oversaturation of horror and how easy they they've been produced and mass produced. That you do have these awesome gems where you're like, man, this is a phenomenal movie, and it just stinks because you know it's in the horror genre, so it'll never get the credit it's due. But I mean, I still feel like you know now they're becoming more enhanced in in the way that they're doing horror. I mean, you still have all the bad ones. I mean, I'm one of those people that I'll just watch a bad horror movie just to watch a bad horror movie. I mean, it's a, I'm going to get a kick out of it either way, but I mean, I like the, the way that they're going now where it's just, you know, it's, it's striking more than just like the jump scares and all that. Like that was the big thing 
for it's, you had the slashers in the early nineties, which were fun. And we all used to love them and, you know, the Jasons and all that. And then it moved over to the possessions and jump scares. And it just felt like that's what a lot of people categorize horror movies. Now it's just like, well, the amount of jump scares and it's not scary. And it's like, well, you got to take these, these types of movies like hereditary and it's just like, it's beyond the jump scares. It's the, the visuals, it's the lasting images that he is great at capturing and just can haunt you. I mean, it has some of the, like, he knows how to grab a, like a picture and just like put you right there with the sounds and all that and just start, you know, you know, the hair on the back of your neck just starts to rise and, you know, you're kind of like, Oh man, this is really weird and all that. And it's just, they're just getting better and better. I feel like, so I do think in due time, maybe they will get the credit in, like the academies will start taking them a lot better because you have these directors that are actually really good in taking them serious and making these phenomenal things, just like get out and all that, what you guys have been saying. Yeah, and it's funny because I was talking to my good friend and co-host of my show about wrestling, Wrestling Geeks Alliance, that we do twice a week. Check that out, guys. Um, Christopher, brother Ray Patton, uh, my co-host is very immense in horror. And I was telling him that it seems like, you know, now horror is getting a resurgence to that of what the eighties were, but as opposed to the eighties where after the first movie, you know, after you would have Wes Craven direct the first, you know, nightmare on Elm street, it just kind of slowly, you know, some of the sequels were good, but it got too very, very cheesy and trying to be, uh, pretty much more money oriented, obviously same thing with Friday the 13th. And, uh, a lot of those, uh, the first three Halloweens were the only ones that had any involvement with, uh, John Carpenter. The first Halloween was the only one that he directed. So the same thing, he would go on to do the thing, which is another horror classic. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, it just seems like it's more of the seventies type of vibe I'm getting from newer horror directors that it seems like they have, complexity and more of the cinematography to really take something like we're going to talk about what hereditary was, which I mean, both of them have to deal with losing someone within your family and how grief is and exploring concepts that are real, whether it be mental illness or some type of stress on the mind due to, you know, PTSD from something like with grief basically and mixing it with, you know, well, with Hereditary, we, we have demonic cults. <laughs> and, and the other one, we have, you know, the, the visualization of something looking more pleasant. It's not as dark and, and dreary with, with Midsommar, but it definitely has more of a, a, uh, a messed up cult also, but, but it's different. I, I don't know how they're, – they're so comparable because they're so similar with – with certain imagery and, and, and certain concepts within the buildup of both movies, as far as really trying to dig into um, these, these similar concepts and topics, but they, he takes it in two very distinct, different directions, different color palettes. He has similar music, but from two different composers and some of the music is more beautiful and one on purpose to kind of make you feel at ease. That's why it's kind of hard for me actually to even consider Midsommar a horror movie and not right horror movie compared to hereditary, but obviously hereditary goes in a much more spiritual route. But I thought that both these films, like I said, 
And and if you don't agree with me, definitely let me know, Alex. But I thought that both these films explored similar concepts, had very similar imagery. You know, you have the prince at the end of it. You have the 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 May the May Queen at the end of one. Like they're different, very they're they're very different, very similar. And he just explores two different things, but brings up very similar type of context to both films. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, they're both, you know, from the same family tree, if you will, uh, pun intended there with hereditary. But it's, you know, the, the, you were right. You touched on a lot of important things that they're both about dealing with grief and how people manage that um, in different ways. And I think the beauty and why this, director and these types of movies should be appreciated. Um, and again, I just, it's almost as if Robert Eggers and Ari Aster are the same in, in a sense, because their movies are so similar. Um, and of course, both distributed by the same distro company, A24, um, where, you know, they're horror, but almost hidden in plain sight in, in a sense, because they're just, it, the, the subtleties in the movies, almost hereditary, for instance, doesn't really even become a horror movie until like maybe an hour in. There's a, a, an immediate feeling of uneasiness or, or it's unsettling. But I mean, it doesn't really break into being supernatural for quite a while. There's hints of it, but it just and, and I think that's a, a beautiful thing. Um, and it's and you look at movies like The Witch. Um, or the lighthouse that also take some time to get to where they need to be um, and, and kind of cement themselves. Okay, here's the identity of this movie. It is a horror movie. Um, one thing I did want to touch on, you know, we talk about the six, the seventies, there's um, a director by the name of uh, Ingmar Bergman, who is uh, renowned. Uh, I believe he's a, 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 maybe not French. I think he's actually Swedish and he's made some pretty, outstanding movies. I don't know if you're familiar with any of them, most famously Persona, um, which came out in, I think, 1960-something. Um, I'm looking on IMDb here, 1966. And it was, you know, you can tell that a lot of these directors are getting these um, uh, 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 influences, these early films that were once appreciated, and then it, again, became oversaturated and just changed shape. And I think we're seeing that kind of come full circle as many things do trends, movies, genres, what have you, they kind of just have the cyclical recycle. And I think that's what we're seeing. Um, so I'm sure there's even more connections back from movies in the sixties and the seventies of these great directors that just took horror in a lot more of a serious, uh, serious fashion. Um, but I'm, I'm happy. I'm here for it. I, I can't wait to see what's next from those two directors in particular. Um, I also like to see a return uh, to horror from some of these other directors, such as um, the individual that did It Follows. Um, I thought that was a spectacular, fresh take on horror. David um, Robert Mitchell. And then, yes, and unfortunately, his 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 movie after that, I think, uh, Under the Silver Lake, was just a, a departure from that. But, you know, hey, um, everybody deserves to do what they want to do. Um, and then there's also one more, uh, Ty West, who I'm a huge fan of, um, who hasn't done much since his last movie, The Sacrament. Um, but uh, his other movies were The Innkeepers and House of the Devil, which were just tremendous horror films. And uh, again, it's, there's a lot of really exciting talent out there. 
and I, I'm, I, I think it's a great time to be a horror fan in general. Yeah, I have to agree with you. It just, uh, even some, like, like I said, I think, and, and I completely agree with you with, uh, you know, what you were saying about Robert, you know, also being someone that you really have to look to. I haven't seen uh, The Lighthouse. I've been meaning to see it. I have it on Amazon, so I'm going to check it out soon, but I definitely like The Witch. It was a slow burn style movie, but just the elements of cinematography, the choice of music, once again, you know, and also, like you said, Dobbert, uh, Dobbert Robert, David Robert Mitchell with It Follows, definitely th- think so. I even liked, you know, between Mama and at least the first It, I liked part two, but not as much, but uh, Andrew Machete, I think, is a great director. Uh, trying to think of another, Fetty Alvarez, who made Evil Dead and Don't Breathe, might not be on that type of huge level, but I think has a great eye sure. for horror. You know, Scott Derrickson, uh, who made Emily Rose and Sinister, and also uh, Dr. Dr. Strange, but not really pertaining to what we're talking about right now. Certain people just, they have a great eye. I liked, here's another person, I, I hate to randomly throw him in there, but I really used to like Rob Zombie. And, I, and some of the stuff that he's come up with has been hit or miss. But still, as, as, as it comes to horror, being someone's definitely influenced by Toby Hooper, he has that, that, that eye. But that's kind of different when you take in what we're talking about, Ari Aster and, you know, Robert Eggers is they can do other film. I'm looking forward to seeing the next Aster movie. It doesn't matter what genre it is. They can they've already shown me they can probably try out something uh, and make a reasonable drama, you know, whatever, and and really, um, you know, put their their take on on multiple genres. But uh, Luke, what do you have to say? Uh, from all this, I, I don't even remember what the last thing specifically we're talking about. So uh, just uh, just comment. We were kind of talking about just the similarities between, I think. Uh, the two uh, movies. Yeah, you're right. You're right, Tane. I don't remember. Go on, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so I, um, I agree that they're they're both very similar. Where it it's almost like like you said, it it takes a while for them to build up and get to the horror thing where it's just so real life and it puts you in there and you're like, man, this can like almost like this, everything that's happening to these people, like I can put myself in their shoes and I'm really like feeling and like, I know their emotions and all that. And I think that's what he's done a great job at doing is just putting you into that setting where, you know, you, you definitely, you're, you're in with the characters and all that. And he's really good at making it seem real life where, horror movies for the longest time were just so cheesy because you're like, man, you know, that's just fake. Like the girl's running in the woods again and the guy's slowly walking and somehow she's going to fall five times and he's still going to catch her. And you're just like, man, this is kind of annoying about the horror. While you have these directors that are taking it more serious and trying to save these genres, I feel like that are letting people know that, you know, these genres are great. Another person I like that's done good in, in a sci-fi because, you know, sci-fi is kind of that same way with horrors. Alex Garland um, with Ex Monica, I mean, he wrote yes. 28 Days Later. So he's another one. One of my favorite it's directors. A different, a different genre, but he's captured these sci-fi movies. And it's just like, man, sci-fi can be really good when you've always just thought about, you know, um, the bad sci-fi, you know, shows and movies. And, you know, you got sci-fi on TV that's just putting these, t- like, Sharknadoes and all that. And just like, man, when you really have these directors that are really good at cinematography, the lights, the way that the, sh- the shots that they're coming in with, the, the music and all that, that they're making these more serious and, you know, they're trying to put credit to these movies. And it's just, it's really, you know, for, 
fans, like, you know, for, for all of us that have been there, you know, and will love these genres. It's, it's nice that, you know, you can show people um, that might not be horror, you know, fans and all that, and you can show them these movies. I'm like, you know, there is really good quality to these movies. They're not just these, just everything that you think. It's not going to be a little splash or these jump scares like this movie's really going to, it's, it's going to, you know, disturb you in a lot of different ways that, you know, that you're not normally used to. And that's what I enjoy horror movies. I like getting to the theater and seeing them in there because you're getting the full, sound and everything and just the eeriness and it's just it's incredible with, with like all these directors how they're you know making these really good movies and it's just that he makes them similar with like you know the kind of like the genre of like you know and some kind of cultish things but i mean it's it's not overboard where you're just like man that kind of just doesn't seem seem like it i mean hereditary too at the beginning i mean it, it just sets it up perfect where it's just like you know the grandma dies and they go to their funeral, her funeral, and her daughter's talking about her, and she's like, you know, she's kind of estranged to me. Like, I don't know my mom. Like, I don't know what she was about and all that. And just, like, slowly you're kind of figuring out, like, what her mom's been into and all that and how it's going to, you know, play into the movie. So I just think that they do a good job to really get you in there and just, you know, make it feel like, man, this is super real, and that's why it's scary because it's not like, you know, well – that that ghost just popped up out of nowhere and scared the shit out of me because I wasn't expecting that person to be behind them where it's just like, now you're just like, man, this is almost like so real that it's just, that's what makes it scary. Yeah. And I just want to chime in and say that, you know, there's two things that I want to bring up that I think that we haven't talked about. One thing I want to bring up that we haven't talked about yet, but just to touch on what you were saying in, in a sense that was, you know, kind of uh, in, in my head, I was thinking, all these other movies that are less realistic or just, you know, more, um, you know, just uh, fantasy world, it's easy to escape, right? It's, it's yep. easy to say, well, this isn't real. Uh, so therefore, you know, that's your mind's way of saying this isn't scary. With Hereditary and Midsommar, there is no escape. He bars you in immediately with these very real emotions, uh, such as grief, uh, loss, um, you know, uh, and, and, and it's very difficult to escape that. And I think that's what makes it uh, scarier than usual because it is real. Everybody can relate with the way that these characters are feeling, which is going to segue me into my next uh, uh, subject that I really wanted to bring up is that the thing that all of these movies we've been talking about, most of them have that a lot of horror movies haven't had is character development. And that's where yes. these directors are focusing the most on. It, they're able to blend it so well into the story that obviously it hits harder when it needs to. And there's just a lot of horror movies. You look at even the classics, Halloween. There's not much character development there. It's a good movie. It's scary for its right reasons. But did I really care about Jamie Lee Curtis's character? Not really. But I don't think that was John Carpenter's intention per se, right? Um, with these movies, obviously, there's a lot more attention paid to the development of these characters. I'm a sucker for character development. If it's lacking, uh, the movie is just not as good as it could have been to me. Uh, without good character development, you most of the time don't have a great movie. And that is one thing that I see the horror genre um, uh, gravitating towards. And one director that we haven't brought up, a director and writer that I think has done this beautifully 
in a more modern sense is Mike Flanagan. Most, you know, recently his claim to fame is the haunting series on Netflix, but you go back in Mike Flanagan's history, Oculus was an incredible movie that was way under the radar. He did make Hush. Um, again, I love that incredible movie. character development there. Um, you know, so I think that's really the turn that we're seeing the horror genre go. And the stronger that gets, the better chance you get at getting uh, that mainstream appreciation through the Academy, such as Get Out, which again, had fantastic character development, a deep story, um, and uh, just a lot of texture. It was robust. Historically, when horror movies were a bit thin and narrow-sighted, uh, one-trick ponies, if you will. So, uh, again, I just I love the direction where these are going, um, and, and character development, I think, is a big part of that. And I would assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'll put it right back to you, Alex. You, you like, like me, like Luke, you like character development in any film, and you think it's pretty much essential for horror. But we're also, I don't think any three of us are saying that, Luke, you kind of alluded to it earlier. Like, none of the, the cheesy horror movies, the sequels that came out after the first couple, you know, a lot of them are fun. A lot of the ones that have, like, that level of, 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 of C grade to even D grade, you know, they're, they're fun. I mean, I love Wes Craven. I think that some of his his movies, you know, Children of the, or the People Under the Stairs, uh, Last House on the Left, Hills of Eyes' early stuff was very intelligent. The first, you can tell that the first Nightmare on Elm Street, he did, and they kind of just kept the thing going to keep on making money. But he would have that popularity, and then all of a sudden after that, he would have, you know, he would basically influence with Scream all those movies that we watched in the late 90s. Uh, you could even say that for someone like a James Wan who – Kind of before Human Centipede and even bef- and, and before um, – uh, whatchamacallit? Uh, man, I can't remember the guy's name now that I'm thinking of it. But um, Oh, Eli Roth with, with making his films. James Wan kind of influenced that with Saw, and then he would later kind of take a little bit more credibility. You can say what you want about – I love The Conjuring and its sequel, and also I, I, I love Insidious. I think those are really good films. Insidious was a better – remake of poltergeist <laughs> than the the remake of poltergeist but um you know it seems like they can get to that level but i think that what, what i'm trying to say to push back to you is we still like cheesy horror movies and we don't have to have them so complex it's just good to see complexity back and with character development that's something that you need i think in any film horror or whatever genre oh absolutely it's crucial um there's, there's movies that get away with it. I mean, you know, you think about one of the, uh, the more fun horror movie, one of the more fun horror movies to come out in the last century, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, that yes. didn't really have much character development to, you know, not, not too much. Um, and it was still a very successful and fun horror movie. Um, another one I can think of that had some stronger character development because it was based around the characters was, um, Oh my gosh, it escapes me. Uh, You're next. Uh, with I don't know if either of you guys saw that movie, but um, it was you know based around a lot of characters and a family, and it was a lot different. Um, the Strangers, I think, is is was before its time in a sense where you did have this incredible strong character development with very minimal jump scares. That was one of the first movies that I recall seeing that was visually scary, outside of maybe The Ring, which blended it very well. But, you know, there were just, um, it was kind of like all these movies leading up to 
you know, the 2010s and on, uh, were kind of hinting towards where the direction was going. And these directors have just been able to capsulize it and really uh, maximize uh, a lot of the great things that were happening, but just almost as if, if, if the directors went too far in that direction, the movies wouldn't have been successful, you know? So now that independent cinema and these incredible distributors such as A24, which I could just go on and on about, are allowing these directors to have this cinematic freedom in their movies. Uh, we're really seeing what these genres can be. And uh, it's in a genre where you never thought there could be resurgence, it's proved time and time again that it can happen. And I mean, we go through the decades and we see it just change, you know, from the 90s to the slashers, from 2000s to the, the Japanese, you know, Asian horror takeover to then uh, 2010s with the demonic possession takeover. And then there were zombies somewhere mixed in between there. And now that's over. Now we're in this era of emotional horror. And I just hope it's here to stay much longer than its predecessors, because it's, in my opinion, the richest horror can get and I think that there should always be an element of this but we've even seen a mixture Train to Busan uh, was a zombie movie but again was a very drama uh, driven film that had very strong character development but just happened to be about zombies so there's there's just a lot of interesting ways that directors have found to blend these things and I, I again I think it's here to stay and I think it's going to eventually lead to a more widely appreciated uh, uh, be, horror being more widely appreciated. And at the same time, though, I will say that the reason why it probably won't ever get its um, appreciation that it deserves is because it's an uncomfortable genre. Not everybody likes feeling dread and, and, and fear, you know, so it is going to be hard for it to get to the point of it being a, you know, movie of the year or, you know, best picture uh, nominee. So, what I think Silence of the Lambs was Best Picture, um, uh, a nominee for Best Picture, if I'm not correct, or if I'm correct. I believe so. I think The Exorcist was nominated as well, too. There's been a couple. Mm-hmm. Rosemary's Baby, I think, as well. Yep. Excellent films, too. And before I pass to, Luke, to you, Luke, uh, I also wanted to mention two directors as far as guys that – are not really limited, uh, that I just don't think one of them, the one I'm about to say, gets enough respect. Alexandra Aja, who made High Tension, the Hills of Eyes remake that I loved. But but then he could go in more of a fun direction with Piranha 3D and Crawl as of recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also Christopher Landon, who was the writer for Disturbia, a a great horror movie, but also he made the Happy Death Day franchise in directing. So, you know, just two other guys that kind of... Yeah, his new movie comes out uh, Friday the 13th, which I'm really excited about. Have you heard about that, Freaky? No. Is he redoing Friday the 13th? Is that what you're saying? Or is it Freaky, so, his name well, in the movie? No, it's coming out this Friday, which is how, which happens to be Friday the 13th, but much like Happy Death gotcha. Day, which was kind of a, a horror spin on Groundhog Day, uh, this is going to be a horror spin on Freaky Friday. So essentially it's uh, brilliant. Um, I, th- I believe Vince Vaughn is one of the main uh, char- main actors. And then there's a, an unknown girl, at least unknown to me. And essentially Vince Vaughn's a serial killer and they switch bodies with a high school girl. So I'm really excited to see where that goes. 
Um, I think, again, that's a brilliant concept that that's how you, that's how you refresh and redo something, right? You know, you just don't rehash it just to make money off of it. Like this recent witches remake and the recent craft remake, which we don't even have to get into because it makes me angry, (laughs) but this is how you, this is how you rehash something, right? Like make it a fun spin on it. I think is, is really special. Um, one director that, uh, or excuse me, writer that I think we need to mention, uh, just out of respect, if we're talking about directors, you brought up Saw with James Wan. We can't forget the writer, which is Lee Wano, uh, who did Insidious, uh, wrote Insidious, wrote Saw, wrote um, Upgrade, which I know wasn't a horror movie, but again, a, a fantastic movie. Love that movie. Um, and recently wrote screenplay for The Invisible Man, which I thought was an incredible, incredible remake. Went in with low expectations in that movie. Again, talk about character development just fantastic movie. Um, I could really go on and on about Invisible Man, um, which again was written by Lee Whannell. Um So I, I feel like he definitely needs a mention. Yeah, writers don't sometimes get respect. And uh, kind of going back and taking it back to you, Luke, uh, before we start going kind of in depth in these movies a little bit more and get it more positioned towards Ari Aster, you know, you, you were talking about Alex and his style and how it's sci-fi. I feel like Alex, along with, it depends on if he can get to this level, but I was, as a sci-fi concept, I was really, you know, I thought John Krasinski, you know, for being uh, the guy on The Office, I thought A Quiet Place was a great sci-fi horror movie, and I think that he's got a very visual concept that maybe he can continue to do that. It reminds me with Alex and him, grouping them together, not talking about either one being better than the other. I'm not trying to compare them like that, because Alex, I think, is a different level, but you know, Ridley Scott with Alien. Ridley Scott had a wide range of movies, or even James Cameron with the first Terminator. That was definitely a sci-fi horror movie. So you're right. I kind of I'm glad that 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 uh, that style is even coming back. But sci-fi is getting its horror edge, and also it's much more smarter because I feel like that is another genre, especially a sci-fi horror part of it, that's been degraded due to, to too many sequels and you know, just trying to do something silly and, and, and copying a lot of elements of stuff that's already been done. Yeah, and I mean, and that's what I think what the academies will start to appreciate more is like what you guys are talking about character development because it's like, it's kind of funny to, you know, for us to, you know, think horror movies, character development because, you know, you're used to these people where you're like, yeah, this person's about to get killed or it's going to get possessed, so it's going to change them completely, so I'm not really invested in them where you have this character development that are in these movies now where I think that the Academy will start to take, you know, a closer look at them because they're, they're actually building these, these things for you and, you know, you're getting invested. So I think that that's one thing that was probably lacking where, you know, the Academy just saw the horror genre as just this genre that's just pushing out all these movies and, you know, they're just the, the blockbuster, you know, fun things. So it's not really to take, you know, take serious where now, you have these movies where character development is the big thing and it's going to be the big reason that the movie will be successful. And, um, and it's kind of funny too. It's like, you know, there's not that many A-listers like, like actors and actresses in these movies, but every single one of these like people, I mean, especially he, um, very alone, just the way that he found like, every single one of the people in the movie are just phenomenal. And it's just like, you know, they're not well-known 
actors and actresses. I mean, not the top of like A-listers. So they're not, you know, you're not going to get that flash where it's going to catch other people's eye and be like, Oh, well, Brad Pitt's in this movie. I'll see it because you know, Brad Pitt, yada, yada, yada. That's, that's why I'm going to the movie and all that, where you get these, like these, these actresses and they, they do a great job of finding them where they're just like, like the mom in hereditary, man, she is just phenomenal. Like, Everything I will say Tony Collette good. has been acting for a very long time, but yes, I'm glad to see her get her uh, her recognition. Six sure. cents. Yeah. That's exactly right. That was one of her first ones, for sure. Absolutely. And I just think, you know, that hopefully with, you know, with all, with all this going on, the resurgence of this is the new horror wave, but it's kind of in my mind where it's like, um, you know, when uh, – you posted the other day, um, Dane, on the message boards, like A24 Blumhouse Productions, like which ones are better? And it's just like, well, they're completely different in my mind because like, I feel like A24 does a great job at the psychological horror where it's like, man, this is just really weird where, you know, Blumhouse, you know, they have the Invisible Man, uh, great, like you were saying, great in like, They'll make these good movies, but you just get so many of them where you just you don't really hold these production companies like that. Like you know, you're just like, ah, eh, it's not that great. Where I just think that this new surgeons of the psychological horrors are just really good and just, and I'm excited. I mean, I love horror movies. I and I try to check them out as many as possible. So it's exciting to see yeah. you know, the character development taken more seriously in these horror movies. I think with A24 and Blumhouse, a, a nice analogy I can think of is like shopping for wine at Trader Joe's versus, you know, uh, uh, a wine depot, wherever that, whatever that's called, wherever you are here, it's total wine and more out here on the West coast. So if I want a really nice curated bottle of wine, I'm going to go to total wine and more, uh, or watch a movie from A24. If I want to go get a cheaper bottle of wine, but can also find a diamond in the rough, um, I'm going to go to Trader Joe's and get a bottle of wine or watch a Blumhouse movie. At the end of the day, both of those wines are going to get me drunk uh, or, you know, scratch that itch, whatever it may be, even if I'm just enjoying a glass. Whereas, you know, 824 and Blumhouse are going to both give me some level of enjoyment or entertainment, but that more curated factor, I'm going to appreciate it more. Um, even if I don't like it, there's going to be complexities of it that I appreciate. Whereas Blumhouse, I'm going to get a bottle of wine that I don't even want to finish, you know? Um, and I have to say, I will be very strongly uh, vocal about A24 being the better uh, distribution, uh, uh, you know, provider, whatever you want to call it, just the better distributor because their content, yeah. even when it misses, there's still going to be some things to appreciate. I, I, I agree with you. I think that, uh, I mean, that movie studio in general, just for all film, it does definitely, it's a different level. But I will say, at least for me, even though there was a time uh, in the late 2000s when I kind of completely just lost my love for horror movies, and now, you know, within the last couple of years, I've developed it back, I feel like the Blumhouse movies kind of did a lot for having credibility to horror and being a good studio that could produce good horror movies that a lot of times, at least at the beginning of it, I would say you could go with Blumhouse even before a 24 started doing their thing with horror. So it's kind of like you need Blumhouse to get to a 24 to an extent, right? Or at least it, right. they, they kind of 
coexist with each other? Well, absolutely. And I think the other thing to mention that is Blumhouse is an exclusive uh, distributor for horror, right? I mean, Blumhouse doesn't do anything outside of horror where obviously A24 does it all. So it really is apples and oranges, but if you were to compare the two, let's just say the horror movies that were distributed through A24 versus all of the Blumhouse films, it's, 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 not, it's almost not fair to criticize Blumhouse for the poor films that they you know, put out because they only do one thing. So therefore, every single thing can't be good. Very much so like A24. Not every A24 movie is good. Um, there's definitely some duds in there. Uh, so, you know, it's just going to be natural to, to see it. But again, it's just, they, they provide, I'm, one needs to exist for the other to exist. So yes, Dane, you are correct. Uh, and I do agree with what you're saying that, you know, without Blumhouse, maybe there wouldn't have been a platform for some of these other distribution uh, or distributors or, you know, production companies to put out what they need to put out. But, you know, every year we're seeing more. I think way back when it was Lionsgate anything that Lionsgate did was, was spectacular back in the early 2000s. And anything um, that like Miramax Fox. did was hit or miss. <laughs> right, right. Miramax, New Line, you know, um, and then of course, uh, uh, what was, uh, starts with a D, I think. Um, Dimension. Can't remember. Yeah, Dimension. And then um, most recently Fox Spotlight, and then you've got uh, a few others that I'm sure we're, we're failing to mention, but I think that Blumhouse and A24 definitely are uh, at the top of their game right now. And, you know, Blumhouse still, I think I'd be interested in it. And I challenge you guys to think of any movies. What do you think is the most similar? What do you think is the closest Blumhouse movie to an A24 uh, distributed horror film? Get Out is um, Blumhouse. I want to say so. I, I put like Get Out and Us. Those are both Blumhouse, so you could put those in like the A24. Are we sure about that? I want to say they are. And Invisible Man. Let me look. Is it? I want to say when I was doing that whole deciding which I'd one I really I'd say Invisible Man more. for sure if that's Blumhouse, which, which I believe it is because they're doing the resurgence of those classic horror films. Um, the first Purge was true, what too. A, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that was a unique spin and Still had a little bit, of, you know. It still had a very horror feel to it, but um, trying to think. Yeah, get here. out to Blumhouse. I mean, obviously, okay, okay. Well, yeah, then I'd say so for sure. Good, good pull, Luke. Uh, yeah, get out and us. Definitely, they're seeing that go into that direction, um, and I believe Hereditary and definitely The Witch came out before Get Out. Um, so interesting how they kind of influence each other you know um in, in absolutely i would say and uh, i mean I, the way i perceive it is that you can get our tour directors for both you know blumhouse and and also for a24 but a24 their style specifically is more avant-garde is more visual is more making your brain wander where Blumhouse can be like that, but they can kind of go for anything. Like they can produce a happy death day, but also produce a conjuring, you know, it just depends. Um, but that's, that's horror for instance, before, let me just sure. have one more thing where I name a couple of directors that we haven't said. And then we'll start, like I said, going to these films. I wanted to mention Jennifer Kent with the Babadook back in 2014. That was a favorite horror movie that I saw that a lot of people 
A lot of people liked A lot of people thought it was overrated. I liked it. Uh, David Gordon Green with his resurgence for the Halloween series. I'm looking forward to those. Uh, mm-hmm. Andre uh, Overdale with uh, Top Team Jane Doe. Yes. Seth Rogen oh, yeah. and uh, what the hell is that other asshole's name? Um, doesn't matter if, uh, if it yeah, comes I, back to me. Right. But, yeah, I'll, I'll talk but, to uh, Jane Doe uh, again. That, that kind of is one of those diamonds in the rough out of those massively produced, you know, straight to streaming services movie where it's like, okay, how many times have we seen a movie cover that looks exactly like this? You just write it off immediately. But you look at the cast, uh, you have not Rip Torn. I can't remember the guy's name. He looks just like him. He's the guy from uh, Dodgeball that throws the wrenches. Um, and then of course, Emil Hirsch, you know, you got some two pretty good actors here carrying this whole film and it, it turned out. And of course it ties in the witch element, which in my opinion is, is my favorite genre of films, uh, you know, with a witch element to it. Um, but yeah, I'll talk to you. Jane Doe is fantastic. What else has that director done? Dave? Um, other than that, uh, Ryan Cox, I think that, by the way, is that guy's name. Uh, so Andre Overdahl, uh, he's done, I think that's like Troll his biggest. Hunter, scary stories telling the dark, which was fine. Um, yeah, I never saw so Troll Hunter. Like so this is this is Troll Hunter's great, man. That's a ridiculous. That's a, one of those movies that was a shaky cam movie that I actually really liked because it was out there and just extremely weird, and just completely went full immersed deep into it. Another person, Patrick Bryce with the Creep series, uh, as far as shaky mm-hmm. cam movies oh, that I actually fantastic. liked. Oh yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And then uh, Damian uh, Leon. Creep. With uh, All Hallows Eve and uh, Terrifier, might be just brutal to be brutal, but still sure. a good. I loved. It seemed like Damien, at least with Terrifier, even though they went to a completely brutal different level, it was very homage to Halloween and John Carpenter's style as far as cinematography. And uh, last person mm-hmm. I would be renounced to not say Tom Six, who made The Human Centipede, which you can say what you want. It definitely sits with you afterwards. So, uh, but right. uh, more of a joke yeah, they all have from him place. trying to do those. Ugh, God. And then we, we have to, we can't, we can't, I, I did one of my favorite horror movies to come out in the last 10 years. Um, when, when we've talked about this director a number of times that have not mentioned this gem, but when we talk about Alex Garland, we can't talk about him without talking about Annihilation. Uh, one yes. of the best sci-fi films uh, to come out in, in recent years, uh, probably right up there with Event Horizon for me and, uh, you know, Slither, um, it's, oh, and also speaking of Slither, uh, which obviously this individual went on to do Guardians of the Galaxy, Dane Hall. James Gunn. I'll defer to you on this guy's name, James Gunn, exactly. Um, you know, which, uh, again, I think was that movie itself was actually a really important film where they kind of brought back that mainstream tongue in cheek aware of itself B rate horror films, which then gave us movies like Piranha 3D and uh, a few others I'm failing to mention. So I think, you know, there's, there's just so many different directions of horror, uh, which I think is, is also a very special thing, you know, where you get these other genres like rom-coms and, you know, romance movies, which obviously are good in their own right, but there's not many directions they can branch off. We're just horror. There's so many different things you can do with it to deliver a similar result which makes it one of the more complex genres, which again, is something that I think is, is, is overlooked. 
underappreciated. You know, it's funny because of modern audiences and how popular superhero movies are, people like James Wan and James Gunn, uh, you know, uh, Scott Derrickson, um, or even Zack Snyder, who first movie was the Dawn of the Dead remake, which is one of my favorites as far as a remake and actually a zombie film, the one that's in the uh, mall. You know, those guys started with horror. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that, but it's it's just crazy. Uh, Luke, anything else to add to Peter the conversation Jackson. before we start? Yes, Peter Jackson, Death, or uh, Sam Raimi, for that matter. One hundred percent. Luke, anything else to add to, to end this conversation before we start going into these two films? No, I think we hit on it. I mean, we need to definitely dive into these just both masterpieces of just individual oh. films. Okay, well, let's let's do that. Uh, we're talking about Ari Aster. I like his sensibility. I like his, like, he seems like a really nice dude. I like to pick his brain, but he seems kind of shy in a way. So he's got multiple scripts he said that he's written. I need to go back and actually watch some of his short films because I heard that they're, a lot of the ones that he did were great. But I think this comes back to Hereditary, uh, released in 2018, starring Tony Collette, uh, Gabriel Byne, Alex Wolfe, and Millie Shapiro, uh, just a brilliant film. And I remember hearing this huge buzz at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival that this was the movie to watch. You know, I know that the, the original quote was the director, uh, whatchamacallit, um, I said his name earlier, William Friedkin, uh, who made The Exorcist, saw this film and said it was the best horror movie he had seen in the last four, or 15 years. So everyone took that and said, scariest movie since The Exorcist, which... I don't know how you can compare. I mean, I guess you could, but I mean, it's it's a different element. I just know that that's how the media goes, and that's how it works nowadays with the clickbait. But uh, great fucking film. I mean, we talked about it earlier. The dark style directing, the dweariness about, you know, it being starting off about death, and not one that Tony Collette's character really cares about with her mother, noting that there's people there that she's never met before, you know, and... It was a movie where they didn't rely on jump scares. You had to pay attention, you know, to be able to catch the main part of the story outside of, you know, the haunting stuff, outside of the mental disorders, outside of the grief and the pain. And there's the fact, I'll stop it at this so we can kind of dive more into the beginning of the film. It, you think that this movie is going to be about the daughter, basically, and she dies, like, what, an hour, not even into the film? The son has to take her to a party to babysit her, basically, and he goes off. She's cake that has peanuts. We're alerted at the beginning of the film that she has a peanut allergy. She stops breathing. He tries to take her. She sticks her head out to try to, like, you know, get air. Uh, there is a carcass of an animal. I think it was a deer in the middle of the road. He swerves, and her head hits the pole and completely decapitates her. And that was the first really messed up part in the film and changed it and brought it into a completely different direction. And, you know, just the breakdown of the relationship between Tony Collette with her husband and Tony Collette with her son, Alex Wolf's character and him at school. It was just such a fucked up film. But like you said, Alex, the first half of it was more of like a family drama than anything else. And then that happens and really changes it and takes it in a very, very different direction. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, we hit character development right out of the gate. Um, and, and there were some subtleties of horror mixed in. I mean, one of the most 
in my opinion, uh, one of the scarier parts of the film that really stuck with me is when she turns off the lights in her model room and sees her mom in the corner just with that creepy smile. Again, no jump scares, no you know, loud sounds to alert you. Just if you weren't paying attention, you didn't see it. And if you did see it, you're just shook to the core. Um, and it just kind of moves on from there. Um, even when she sees the door open to her mother's room and sees the symbol on the floor, um, you know, just kind of pointing towards something's not right. Uh, another moment early in the film that really stuck with me with the daughter was when she walked outside and saw, I think it was her grandmother or others uh, of the cult, you know, around the fire. Just that imagery was just phenomenal. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, one thing I will say that I think you guys both know about me is I uh, despise trailers. Um, I feel my taste in movies is uh, strong enough where I can either look at a film's poster or the director, the writer, the actors, just the title even, and understand if I want to see that movie or not, and do not have to watch the trailer. I purposefully hid from this trailer, and I mean that. When we were in other movies, which now, when obviously, when there was a time when we went to the movie theater, uh, I would intentionally get there 15 minutes late so that I didn't have to sit through any of the previews, because there was many times where a movie would come up that I wasn't able to distract myself from by just reading my phone and I would walk out of the theater. I knew when a trailer for Hereditary come, I would get up out of my seat, walk down the whole row and just stand outside until the trailers were over to avoid that. And I think if I had seen a trailer, I wouldn't have been as surprised that the main, what I thought was the main character, the little girl had died so early on. So I thought that that was, really shocking and 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 yes i agree with you dane that was a turning point for that film yeah luke same question being in the film and just it building up seeming more like a a family drama like we said and then that one scene taking the, the direction of a film to a completely different place yeah i mean um like you guys are saying the shots like the definitely the one where the the little girl seeing the them sitting in the fire i mean he does a great job at foreshadowing like things to come. It's definitely where you can watch it multiple times and appreciate the movie. Like the first time, you know, you don't know anything that's going to come and it's going to happen. Whereas the second time, you know, hey, he's going to the party, his sister's going to die. But on that way there, he, he gives you just a straight still shot of that pole of what's about to happen. Like this pole is going to come back into play. And, you, and at, at the time when you're watching, you're like, okay, that was kind of weird. Like he does a lot of like, quick still shots and you're just like you don't know what it's really meaning but in once you've seen it for a second time you're like man this foreshadowing of like he just does a really good job at like these just you know setting you up for later um when you can watch for a second time and appreciate it again and be like man he's really good at what he's doing i mean just coming into the movie i mean it's just a still shot through the window and you're looking at her fort and He's just slowly bringing in this music and you're just like, there's no sound. I mean, there's no, no talking going on. You're just like, kind of like, man, it's kind of like eerie and it's building up. And then it goes into the, like the little cast house that she makes and all that. And then he brings you into the house and he's just really good at setting, setting up things like that. I mean, the scariest part of the movie. And I didn't think the whole time I was like, they're not going to show it. They're not going to show it. I mean, you know, he hits the pole to decapitates his sister and you're just like, they're not going to 
show me what like the end carnage is like you know it's a very terrible thing from his mom's reaction especially from his reaction how shook he is which it kind of made me mad at the time that I saw it and then I was like dude how do you just go straight home you know after something like that but like you just don't know like you can't you you can't put yourself in that kind of shoes and and be like you know I'd react this way and all that like you probably would end up doing the same thing that he does and then you know his mom's now seeing the sister and all that and then the shot I mean it just it still haunts me and it just he brings you and he just shows you her decapitated head on the ground and then like you said Dan that's the turning point and the whole time I thought she was the main character too and I was just like wow this has definitely changed and all that and it's just from that point on it's just now it's a horror movie. Now you're kind of scared. I mean, the little girl is phenomenal. I mean, everything's like a little, and just like her weird antics that she does and all that. I mean, the shot where it's like the bird dies and all that, and then she goes out there and just cuts its head off, and she's just slowly playing with it, and just like you know, he's kind of, you know, foreshadowing like you know you're gonna lose your head in the end too and all that, and like you know you're you're messing with this bird's head and you've cut it off and all that, and it's just just weird just like things like that and you're like how can this be so scary but it yet it's just terrifying and it's just a lasting image that just sits with you and it just i mean it's gonna take me a while again to get this that the shot of her head just out of my mind because i know it's just it's one of those ones and i mean and the sounds too he does a great job with sounds you know if it's the person screaming or you know just the 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 low music coming in and all that it's just you know you're just getting terrified and all that i will even say that it's both movies uh, you know talking about midsummer the connection between the use of music for that you know the, him building up that one scene to you seeing the head and then hearing uh tony collette's character annie graham just scream very similar to midsummer when she finds out that her sister killed herself and then accidentally killed the parents. And they show that the use, the choice of music, the bringing it up and then having her scream and going, no, 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 no. With Danny, like my God, he's, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing that both these kind of had similarities to them because I think this was his ode to horror. He's going somewhere else and they kind of were supposed to, but I just, he can make you the anticipation just seem forever within this film. Well, I mean, that I wouldn't have wanted anything else. I, 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 I mean, to see, because, I mean, how many times do you go into a movie expecting something similar to what that uh, artist had done in the past, even if it's an album? You know, so many people want what made them like that or anticipate seeing or listening to that artist um, in the first place. And Ari, Ari Aster gave us that with Midsommar, I mean, right in the beginning, you get this just, I mean, honestly, that first 10, 15 minutes of Midsommar is, is probably my favorite moments of either of the films. Every time I watch it, it, it freezes me with dread, pain, uh, and just pure horror. Um, where like like the scene in Get Out when he's frozen with the single tear coming down his eye, you know, paralyzed in fright. That is me at the beginning of of Midsommar, and especially just everything about it. I, I just I could go on and on and on 
Um, I don't, I don't want to skip over hereditary first. So I'll dog ear this and come back to it. But um, I love the similarities between the two. It, it, it led you to just enough familiarity with, you know, when you're watching Midsommar, just enough familiarity with hereditary to say like, okay, I'm in for a good film again. Like I can already tell he's done it again. Um, and I think that was intentional. I do too. All right. So within the movie, we meet Joan, uh, you know, Annie has been going to, she admits that back when her, we, you know, we find out that her brother killed himself, her father killed himself. And we never find out that much of the details. I think later we kind of assume that it might not have been actual suicides, but you know, that's, that kind of ties in all at the end, like I said, with the bow, but she's been going to these grief counseling and she went for her mother and now she has to go back for her daughter and she almost doesn't. She meets Joan and Joan befriends her, tries to teach her a way to talk to her daughter as a median. And of course she believes her cause she wants anything to be able to communicate with her daughter and basically brings the Prince of hell <laughs> into her house. Um, and this is where shit just goes fucking crazy. You know, she keeps on getting more and more tense. You can tell she's on the brink of just snapping mentally. Her husband doesn't want anything to do with the seance that she tries to do that ends up going a little bit crazy. Her son is having such bad PTSD, and you can tell that all the stuff that happened to him at school and also all the stuff happening with the haunting, you know, even at school attacking him, like he's just going down this bad, bad path. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this kind of accumulates to what the end of the movie is, you know, the reveal of of the demon itself and it jumping from person to person and the cult. But before we kind of get into that, just the meat of the movie, the middle part, uh, this this ride of seeing, you know, Alex Wolf's character, Peter, just tortured, uh, both from his family, from just, you know, anger from the mother and... Also, just Annie's character, Tony Collette's uh, performance of just kind of losing it, and the father trying to keep the family together, and Joan basically having ulterior motives, obviously, but doesn't really get displayed until Annie finds in her mom's room the pictures of her with her old group, but we don't know really what that group is at that point. Um, Luke, what, what, what did you think about the middle of this movie building up to the climax? No, yeah, I mean, the middle is, you know, the giving you, like, everything that you need. I mean, you can't definitely walk out and miss her going through her mom's box and finding, you know, the that they're into this, like, demonic thing and all that in this book. So if you miss that, you just, it's going to be completely, you know, ruined. But I think one of the best scenes of the movie is, you know, um, she alluded to she has bad sleep, um, you know, she sleepwalks and tells, you know, Joan that, the story about how her and her son that they don't like you, you know, that he holds it against her when um, she doubts them with kerosene and all that. But um, the scene that I really like is, you know, um, she's sleeping, but she's standing over them and she's looking at her son and her son's like, why do you hate me? And she's just like, I, I try to kill you. Like, I didn't want to have you. I was forced to have you. And it's just this, you know, you're getting this like really gritty, like, scene where it's just like you're emotionally you're like man just like to be the son right now and all that and hearing that from your mom and she's like you know I did everything I could to get you miscarriage everything they told me um you know and you're just like wow this is just a really gripping just scene right here just just 
putting you through a whirlwind of emotions. You know, you're seeing it from her side and all that, and she's going crazy because they just had the the huge exchange at the t- kitchen table where he's like, you know, mom, you got something on your mind and all that. And then you you just feel this, and then out of nowhere, she just wakes up, and it's not real. You know, she was dreaming that the whole time, but like you're you're really getting like inside her head and like her emotions and how she's really feeling, and you know, trying to cope with this grief and all that, and not really knowing how to relate to her son and just like, I just thought that was like probably one of the, you know, the best scenes that made me really go through a lot of things. Just was just, it was just, you know, it was a lot, just that whole conversation that she has with them. And you're just like, wow, this is just a really powerful just scene right here. Yeah, man, her dreaming just in general. And a lot of the, you, you, you said this earlier, the uh, imagery of using the dollhouses, that's her hobby and go into those scenes and even her like making the most grotesque ones because that's her way of like dealing with it. And the, the husband not getting that, but using these close-ups and then making that actually the room itself and the, the cinematic style that Ari does with this film. But yeah, the fact that she tried to kill her son in her sleep, that's a good reason not to like your mom, I would say, huh, Alex? Oh, absolutely. I'd say, yeah. Setting me on fire is not a good way to bond. Oh, God. But, uh, yeah, I guess that we can talk about the ending so we can get into Midsommar. But, I mean, that's – I know that some people thought it was too much. I thought it was awesome. I was – see, the thing is, like, you kind of said it, Luke. Like, certain things, it's like it's very hard not to catch where this is going, to catch the cult elements. It's harder to see some of the people in the background and some of the things going on. Um, maybe the first time, but I saw a majority of everything and I kind of knew the direction this was going. So to me, I don't think that you have to be someone that's complex or have that deeply of a love for cinema to get this film. Um, you just got to fucking just look at the thing and not look at your phone. And to me, I was completely drawn in the whole entire time. So going to the ending, I kind of saw the direction in which it was going, but, uh, yeah, we find out Joan, it's not who she claims to be. You know, uh, first Annie comes home. Uh, she tries to basically – what was the item that she had that she tried to light on fire? I actually do forget that, and I apologize. Luke, you and Alex, both either one of you guys know, I'm sure, that uh, – Yeah, that was her – That was her um, drawing book. That was the daughter's drawing book, right. Because she was drawing different – okay, yes. So she tries to throw that in the fire. She burns – um, and then later tries to show the husband it, and then he burns to death, and that completely snaps her. The demon goes inside, possesses Annie, and you have Peter wake up from a sleep, and you can see, or you know, if you're paying attention, Annie in the background going through, like up and down the walls, exorcist style, just completely crazy. Swimming through the air. Swimming through the air, quite literally. Uh, yeah, and then finds her, his dad, and just the imagery of everything that builds up from that, the mom trying to kill him, him trying to hide in the attic, her slamming her head against the attic door while he's screaming to like, you know, mommy, like, you know, get her to back off and just finding Joan Here and, and the seeing movie, all these, opinion. my God, just seeing all the naked people, the cult members come forward and him jumping out the window after seeing his mom decapitate herself with freaking piano wire, blood's going everywhere. He's completely lost it. He jumps out the window, sees her head float to her little sister's, you know, treehouse, goes up in there. There's a ceremony going on. Her mom's body is there, along with the grandmother who's been dug up from the grave, praising this, this demon, Pion. 
and just finding out and realizing, oh, Pyman. he's the one that's going to be the – Pyman, that's right. He's going to be the host of this. And, you know, the fact that he puts the sisters or, – or they basically put the sisters being inside of him and make, you know, worship uh, – uh, uh, basically, as a prince, if you will, it's it's so hard because it, it, it's Peter, mm-hmm. but it's not Peter. You know, it's it's it's, it's, it's not him at that man. point at all. Um, the, no, the, it's uh, the sister. So, right, well, it's, yeah, which was first in uh, Tony Collette's character, Charlie, and then right. transfers to him after she jumps after he jumps out the window. Um, but you know, from from everything leading up to this, this is when it becomes full blown horror, and this is where the movie lost a lot of people, unfortunately. Which I, I feel badly for I those individuals. Get. You know, I spoke with a lot of people that said, "Oh gosh, it was great, but just that ending." I mean, my God! And I'm just like, "Are you kidding me?" That's what made the movie because then it solidifies everything that you honestly were hoping for, and shit completely hit the fan, and it just went berserk at the end of the film, which uh, to just touch on a movie we spoke about earlier, Annihilation. Completely shit hits the fan in the last 20 minutes of that film. Again, makes the movie. So I think the ending of um, Hereditary was was crucial and was important. If it would have went in any different direction or maybe was a bit more tame, I think that it wouldn't have been as strong as a film uh, because it really then brought it back to its origin of it being a horror movie and it revealing that this is all, you know, cult, witch, spiritual, demonic, everything that, again, is hard to deny. You know, some killer coming back from the dead and being, you know, impossible to kill like Jason or a dream demon like Freddy Krueger. Eh, I, I could, it's hard, it's, it's easy to not believe that. But again, demonic, witches, all that stuff, you know, if you believe in God, you got to believe in the devil. Can't believe in one without the other. So, you know, again, things that are hard to disprove, which, again, just makes the movie much scarier. Um, and just every moment of that grand finale in the house when when Tony Collette's character is, is uh, possessed is just the one of the best 20 minutes of horror cinema. Um, that that scene with her banging her head violently against the attic door um, again why I don't watch trailers. I always go through and watch the trailer after I'd seen the movie. And sure enough, that scene was in the trailer and that really shook me to the core seeing it uh, in theaters, not knowing that that was going to happen. Cause when you, when he runs up into the attic, you hear the banging and it's very quick. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's boom, 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 boom. You know, so you immediately think she's, she's hitting her fist on the on the attic door and then for them to reveal that it's just her head violently banging in such a uh unnatural speed of one you know people don't move their necks that fast was just oh god just really chills me to the bone um but yeah the ending of the film was crucial and uh, i wouldn't have changed a thing about it Yeah. Uh, same question, Luke. Or could you imagine, you know, mom just chasing us up into the attic and bashing her head against the door? I think she's done that actually. <laughs> that would give me nightmare. And, and the best part is, it's like he doesn't know that this is that's how she's banging on the door. He's absolutely just petrified, like you're saying. He's pleading to like get his mom to stop. Like he's just like he's just you know he's so scared to the bone. And then 
you just, you know, you feel his, you know, his scaredness and all that when they just show you that shot and you're just like, oh my, this makes it even more intense. Like, I'm with him right there. Like, I wanted to scream, mommy, please stop. Like, I was wanting to plead for him to, you know, for her to stop tormenting him like that. And then her just coming up out of nowhere, like in the corner with the piano wire and you're just like, man, this, and, and, and I love the end of the movie. I feel like, you know, there's no other way that you could have do it. If they were to rush, it would have been terrible. I mean, me and you kind of talked about this uh, movie, Alex, that um, Antebellum, where it's kind of like the end kind of felt rushed, where it was just, you know, take that extra time. Like, you know, really, if you built this up, you know, where Hereditary built this thing up to, you know, where you're wanting it to go, and you're like, okay, well, I want to know what all these people are about and, like, why they praise this guy and, and how it's taking over, you know, going jumping from person to person, and then it just everything. I mean, her body slowly going up into the tree fort and all that and then like you're just seeing all the cold people and all that and just it's it's terrifying i mean i just told y'all i mean i literally just rewatched it right before that and i just forgot how scary it was the ending and and i'm 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 with you guys that i've heard a lot of you know i've talked to some of my friends i mean one of my other good buddies tyler we've always enjoyed horror movies he didn't like this the ending, which was very, like, you know, I was like, come on, man, like, he actually didn't like either of these movies, because I think that they scared him to the point where it just, you know, really, you know, placed the, you know, it took room in his, in his head for a while where he couldn't shake it out, where he just, you know, I think it was just like, he didn't like him because of that reason, and, and I think, you know, there's no other way to go with this movie, too, I mean, especially the ending, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, it's terrifying, especially, you know, her just figuring things out and trying to explain it to the husband. And the husband at this point is just like on his breaking end. Like, you know, he's already saying like, you know, he had to go to the school for the second time for his son. And this time, you know, his son bashed his head. That scene too, where those, those scenes that like, you know, the way he's holding himself right there. And you're just like, it reminded me of, um, you know, the exorcism of Everly Emily Rose, where, the boyfriend wakes yep. up and she's just contorted in this like weird spot. And it's just like, that's just scary. And it's just like, God, for everyone in that classroom, probably just like to, you know, when the teacher's like, are you, are you all right, Peter? Are you all right? And now everyone is like everyone's looking like, over and like, what in the fuck is going on? Like, yeah, it's just fun it's, fact. That was the first scene that Alex Wolf shot for the movie. Oh, that's very interesting. That's his well, introduction. First scene, wow. that, that would start me off to be like, okay, this movie's about, if I'm on set and all that, <laughs> that's the first scene. I'm like, this movie's about to be phenomenal and just crazy. Like, just imagine, just like, you know, like, you're one of the, you know, the actors or actresses, and you're kind of reading it, and he's, you know, he's painted this visual picture, and like, you know, you're doing these scenes. I mean, if you're doing this, that's the first scene, and it's like one of the end scenes and all that, and you're just like, how is he going to bring this all together? And just imagine just being there and just like when you finally see at the end, you're like, my God, this was just what he did and what he really wanted to portray. He got it. And it's great. I mean, the ending is, it's, it's one of those endings where it will definitely, I mean, if you don't want to stomach those types of things, you can, it can deter you to not appreciating how really well he ended the movie. Yeah, I tend to put it hereditary, like I said, now on a different level of horror. Because, I mean, don't get me wrong, there is still 
brutality in it, but not to the level that some horror movies have to go to get that. Like I, I mentioned Terrifier earlier or like a hostel from Eli Roth. Like there are brutal scenes, but it's not through the whole thing. There are somewhat jump scares where they'll take the music, and if you're visualizing on what's in the background, it will freak you out. But there's not really jump scares in it. It's really more psychological, and you just paying attention, and where it goes in that last moment of the film just completely just made my brain just – I don't know. It was like a fireworks display. Like the grand finale was going on while I was watching it. I was just like, what? But uh, wrap it up. Uh, Any last comments about this? film before we go to midsummer alex um nope just a modern masterpiece uh one one for the history books yep i would put it up there you know for a modern movie for me to say this is really good like up there with the shining and the exorcist i think it's that good of a horror movie honestly um it'll be remembered i believe in cinema uh luke same thing any last comments about hereditary before we move on I think the 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 last thing I'll say is um, I kind of hope the the little girl gets like another shot at a movie just because I mean she's just really good and I just don't want her to be known as this like really creepy you know like I just think you know she's a pretty good actress I'd like to see her in other movies but she's just man just everything about her in the beginning of the movie creeped me out I was just like everything about you like I don't understand like it's just you're just so creepy and it's just it's so weird how like she doesn't even have to say any words on all of that. And it's just like, Oh man. Yeah, I agree. I think that she was great. I think Alex Wolf was great too. I think I'd like to see them both uh, in some more movies, but let's move on before we get out of here. Let's definitely talk about Midsommar. Like I said, this movie to me was similar, but different. And that's what I love about it. It was like, I hate to use this, a yin yang, if you will, like, you know, the bright colors in this, compared to the black and dreary colors of the other one, the daytime to the nighttime, you know, but the similar concepts and imagery and certain things that they did. I mean, honestly, the head gang decapitated scene in Hereditary was much the elders jumping off the mountain scene. It just took it to a completely different level. When you're building up, it seems like more of a breakup story and more of a them trying to find themselves on this vacation and then it goes to very different places. But um, the opening, you know, Ari Aster kind of described this as a, like a messed up fairy tale. <laughs> and that's a pretty good uh, determination for it. You know, they started with like this like nice little text and pictures and pretty music in the background showing you the story itself of what's going to happen in a sort of way. And then we get to Florence Pugh's character. By the way, I want to just throw out that Florence Pugh – is going to be humongous uh, in the next couple of years. Besides, like, the, I mean, just Little Women, Midsommar, Fighting With My Family. She made that in the same year, and I loved all those movies for different reasons and her performance in them. Lady so, Macbeth, man. If you guys haven't seen it, Florence Pugh, one of her early films. Again, probably something that we should uh, mention. It's, it is kind of a horror-based film, but and, and very... Uh, character driven and well done. Uh, not to be confused with Macbeth, with with uh, with Fassbender. Full disclosure. I'll de- I, I've heard of that movie and I need to check it out. I know that she had another movie that she was in, uh, Little Drummer Boy, I believe. That Drummer Girl, the a mini series that she was in, that kind of was the thing that she got started with. But I've liked her in everything I've seen her in. 
this movie I think might have been her best role. And I know that Little Women she was nominated for an Oscar for, but to me, Danny and just how tragic she is of a character. So we found out this relationship between Danny and Jack Rayner's character, Christian. Um, she is, you know, she seems like she has her own issues and her sister has depression. She's bipolar. And unfortunately I can, you know, kind of sympathize with her for that level, but obviously she's at a very rocky part within her life of having it. And, you know, before she's kind of, it seems like through dialogue between the boyfriend and, and Danny, you know, that she's done this before for attention, well, unfortunately, this time it's not for attention, and she ends up inhaling a chemical to kill herself, but it escapes from her breathing after a while and poisons the whole entire house, killing her mother and father. So just right off the bat, just really before what they did in Hereditary, pulling your heart, ripping it out, and you have right beforehand Christian with his friends, uh, Josh and Mark and Pell, Pell being the gentleman who's from Sweden that's going on this 90-year festival that's in his home village, inviting his two his uh, his three guy friends that they all go to school film school together, and you know you have William Jackson Harper playing Josh and Willem Poulter who was who I have liked in a lot of stuff uh, as of recently as well, being the comedic relief as Mark, and he's they're trying to convince Christian she's she's killing you like this is before. Her family dies. She finds out this. She's like killing, you know, your 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 enjoyment. You know, you're, this is the reason why you don't want to go on this vacation. It's not going to work out. This is a toxic relationship. You know, it doesn't seem like there's any type of physical or mental abuse per se. Well, maybe a little bit more so with the mental stuff later. But, you know, it's just not working out, and they're just hanging on to hang on, and they're trying to convince them to, like, you know, just break up with her. And obviously I think that Mark kind of has – ulterior reasoning he just doesn't want a girl around if if she were to be in the mix or he wants his friend to go with them and not stay because of the girlfriend so then they find out what happened she calls him he comes and tries to be with her and then she finds out that he's going on this vacation he never even fucking mentioned it to her and you know she tries to be casual she apologizes you know immediately she apologizes way too much throughout the film which kind of has to do with the ending um and uh, she ends up going. And Pell is very happy that she's going to be going there with them. And they embark on their journey to Europe, to Sweden, basically. And, uh, yeah, just we'll, we'll get to the whole tripping thing and then meeting this wonderful group of people. But the beginning with just how dark it was and showing her sister, you know, killing herself and accidentally poisoning the parents, knowing that when she called at the beginning of the movie – and her parents didn't answer that they were poisoned at that point. That's why they didn't answer the phone. They were just laying in bed. So it just – it really messes with you and shows you how toxic relationships, whether or not they're abusive or not, just sometimes it's just two people that don't want to get out of it just to not have no one. So uh, really, just really we have to start, like I said, Alex, a little bit more soon uh, than Hereditary to jump this into uh, a gear that will – like I said, excel once we see people jumping off of mountaintops. One hundred percent. As I was saying when we were discussing mid, uh, Hereditary, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite moment of either of these films is the first fifteen minutes of Midsommar. Uh, just gripping immediately sets the tone, um, and uh, I mean, in, in terms of display of acting, score. 
you know, cinematography, everything is there in present. And, and immediately the character development, immediately within the first five minutes, the character development is, is more palpable than most movies can do in an hour and a half. Again, which makes me so upset when a movie lacks character development. So one of the best parts of the opening are, uh, what, excuse me, let me rephrase. One of my favorite moments of the opening are the moment, and, and sorry, I keep switching around here. I want to correct something. It was by no means an accident in terms of the sister killing the parents. That was all intentional was all and not accidental in any way. Even in the message that she writes to her and says, I'm taking mom and dad with me. Um, very intentional, oh. which makes it even scarier. Um, which, again, yeah, just adds more terror to the fact that she not only killed herself, but took the parents with her um, and said that, you know, we're, we're going to, the darkness, I can't remember exactly what she said in the message, but um, absolutely intentional. So the moment where he picks up the phone and she immediately is screaming, that terror, that's that, you know, mirror to Tony Collette screaming, um, to then showing the car in the garage where you hear a tone, which you think might be a car horn, and you realize it's just a string on a violin playing this constant note. And it's slowly showing what is happening, where you see the exhaust pipes taped to these uh, to, you know, hoses that are then going into the house, and you first see the, the firefighter going in to turn off the ignition of the car, but no one's in the car. And then you see, of course, the tape that is taped up on the doors, the French doors to the parents' room to make sure that no smoke is getting out and they've killed themselves. And then, of course, that terrifying uh, moment, which you see throughout the film, whether it's subliminal or intentional, of the sister with the hose duct taped to her mouth, um, leading to the message that, uh, that um, the, the other sister, um, played by Florence Pugh, Danny, was, was messaging her. Um, and then just the way that it pans out of the window into the snowy uh, landscape, you know, dropping the title, Midsommar, just immediately sets the tone. You're just like, wow, what are we in for? I've watched this movie close to six times. Every time I watch it, I'm frozen in fear with, with tears in my eyes after that scene. And for a director to be able to continuously extract that emotion from the viewer is just, that is why you watch movies. It's, it's really something special. Yeah. Incredible stuff. And I mean, I was saying it earlier with hereditary, apparently I wasn't paying attention to that because I didn't even see that. So that's also something I like about Ari Aster is that you have to pay attention to what's going on in the film or you're going to get lost at some point, but just either way, just, yeah, man, that, that beginning scene is just so heartbreaking and it's also a good reflection. You kind of, I think that people that might've gone into this that saw hereditary might've thought, Oh, this is going to be dark and dreary as well. You know, I guess if you look at the art of the posters kind of differs your opinion, but you know, it, it looks darker. It looks like the same type of concept, but as soon as this intro is done, it's daytime for the rest of it. It's bright colors. It's, it's, it's 
bright, pretty colors, vibrant colors throughout the whole entire thing. So I also like that aesthetic that he chose for making the introduction of the movie. Luke, what do you think about this beginning part to show you this relationship and also her dealing with grief, much like Annie had to deal with grief within Hereditary? No, yeah, I mean, this movie is, uh, I mean, I've, I could only do it once. It really, it really affected me big time. I mean, like you guys are saying, he starts it off and it's just like, because, you know, from Hereditary and all that, like, you know what you're going to get. You're definitely going to get the screaming and all that. And, and like, you know, you're going to feel their emotions and all that, especially like when you're saying when he picks up that call and you can just hear it. And it's just like, oh, man, it's just like you're already not feeling well and it's starting the movie and all that. I mean, you and you definitely you kind of feel for him when like he's him and his friends are like, you know, giving him the shit at the bar and they're like, you know, you need just be done with it, you know, and all that and then it goes to what happens with her and her sister and all that and it's just, you know, it's from the get-go, it's like you're already in it and you're just like you've gone through so much emotions and we're only 15 minutes in, you're like, man, this movie, if it's starting like this, it's about to be really really just i mean i I'll, I'll definitely watch it again it's just it, it 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 was disturbing i mean it's just like and it does it in different ways in this movie and and between hereditary but this one was just and like you're saying dana how it's like it's it's super bright from there on out and all that and you know you're kind of like feeling like okay maybe they'll bring this back down to earth you know if it, the the beginning might have just been the most intense part now we're going to get this you know, they're going out to this, like, crazy festival out in, you know, Europe and all that. And it's, no, it, it definitely has a changing point, <laughs> like you're saying. But the changing point in this one is the cliff jump. When you're really, now you're figuring out what this whole festival's about and how, you know, they appreciate life and they see it in, you know, their sections of life and they've exceeded their parts. So, you know, they need to, they're no longer helping out, the you know, the colony and all that. So, I mean, it's it's great. And then um, I know you said we'll touch on this. I'll just uh, jump on it right now. I think this movie does the best I've ever seen any type of movie, TV show, or anything portraying of hallucinogenics. Like, gr- like very kind of not one hundred percent agree. That, yeah, oh, like I think one, I think I think it is. Yeah, just no nothing more realistic than than the way that they were tripping. Uh, clearly. Ari Oster uh, uh, wrote that from experience. I would yeah. think so, yeah. The only movie I can say would be close is, is Natural Born Killers, but I think this one took it to a different level because of the colors, the vibrant, bright colors, like I keep on saying. Yeah, and I mean, Luke, it's just a phenomenal scene, too. And, and it's just a great scene, too. I mean, he's, he's getting you, and like, you know, when you kind of see those types of movies that like portray drugs and all that, you know, you can kind of get turned off or be like, this is kind of, you know, out there, but it's like, it's really playing in, especially to her anxiety the whole time too. I mean, the one part where she thinks the group's laughing at her and, and all that. And, um, what's the, um, the main guy from the the country of the visit, he like tries to reassure. He's like, no, I'm, I'm sure, you know, they're probably not laughing at you. You're just overthinking it. Cause you know, you're tripping and all that. And then, she like gets away and then she's like in the porta potty, which is probably the worst spot to be, or like in the little like bathroom and she sees her sister and all that. And the time too, they, the, the whole thing with um time that he like involves with it too, is where like, they don't really know how long and all that. And I mean, it's just, you know, 
any type of like, you know, hallucinogenic things, you know, time's going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be, you're not going to understand it. And it's, and it's just a great scene. And then it just sets you, you finally, after like that, like a good 30 minutes into the movie, it walks you into the village there. They get done tripping. They spend the night out there and then they go into the village and, or, and it's, it's a lot from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will say one thing is that I, I loved his choice. Uh, directors that can make you feel a certain way, like you were saying with tripping with Midsommar, I will say that with hereditary, the way that he shot it and the, what happened basically it was almost making me tired. Uh, I would compare it to Nolan with insomnia almost like that was intentional. Like he's supposed to make you feel mentally drained throughout the movie from what, sh- what you're watching in this for people that have done hallucinogenics. And I'm not going to say if I have or not, I have uh, anyways, um, you know, it makes you feel like you are tripping when they are because of the cinematography, the, the stuff that he puts, put, you know, special effect wise and post, uh, especially when it gets towards the end with the whole May queen scene, uh, I think that that's amazing. Another thing with this with this movie that I think is incredible is the choice of music. Also, no, I'm not talking about necessarily the, the score. You said it, Alex, with like the the one note on the on the uh, you know the the violin playing, but even the hymns and, and the musical stuff with like everyone singing and harmonizing. The harmonies, it's unsettling harmonies. Like the only thing I can compare with the music is like a band like Alice in Chains where Lance Staley and, and um, Jerry Cantrell, their harmonies together, it was beautiful, but it was very unsettling. And they would do it for everything. Later on when Danny's crying and they're trying to get her to express it completely and this, this anger and stop hiding it, they are literally crying in harmony with her. So I thought that that use of music, just he's a very brilliant director is what I'm trying to say, a very gifted director. Yeah, I, that that yeah, scene when they're crying and and synchron and synchronized crying uh, brought the biggest smile to my face in the theaters when I first saw it, just because of how unsettling that scene was and how powerful that scene was. Um, it almost, you know, was just again brought tears to my eyes because of how intense it was. Such a release, and that was really her beginning of them breaking her which Pele, that was his plan the entire movie. Um, it really was. You, he, he latches onto that very quickly, that this is a person that is mentally broken enough that I need to bring to my town. Um, and they even reward him later in the film for his foresight and his, his ability to see that in people. Um, and there's, number of, there's, there's so many Easter eggs in this movie and little subtleties that Dane, if you go back through and watch this movie, um, you will benefit from it greatly. Um, you know, even if you watch it two or three more times, you'll pick up things on the second or third time that you didn't notice the first or the time before that you'd watched it. But um, it, it was it was Pele's master plan all along to bring her because he knew how broken down she was, and it worked. It absolutely worked. They broke her. They manipulated her into believing that they supported her, which in a way maybe they did. You don't really know who are the bad people in this movie. You know, um, this is this is very much their culture. And as they had said when the elders jumped off the cliff that, you know, to them, this is normal. They have a life cycle and this is the end of their cycle. 
And for us, as, you know, Americans are just, you know, normal people putting our uh, parents into nursing homes when they're older can be just as horrible as them just choosing to end their lives. And they, they mentioned that in the film. I love that comparison because it makes a lot of sense. And let's, uh, let's talk about that scene, get a little more in depth with it, because my God, when this happens and Luke, you kind of, when you were talking about this movie, you didn't tell me exactly what happened, but you gave me enough information that I knew something messed up was going to happen in the middle of it. And when this happened, I'm like, I think that they're going to go and do something weird. I, I, I never thought they were going to jump off the friggin' mountain. So, you know, they kind of started off, they, they, they had their first day where they saw like a lot of stuff. They probably were like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be nice. They might have thought maybe a little bit of uneasy stuff because they didn't know exactly what was going on, but they're seeing there's so much tradition. They go to sleep. They come out. That day, they, see the, they meet the elders who kind of lead everything. And, you know, they were joking around with Pell, Pele the night before when he was telling them, like, I think it was Danny was like, so what happens after 75? And he like did the whole undertaker thing, you know, and they all start laughing at it. It was like, no, that, that really happens. <laughs> and they go to watch the two elders go and cut their hands and put their, their blood on the stone with uh, their symbol on it. And then they both jump off the cliff. Uh, the first, the women and everyone is mortified, including two of the people that came um, that weren't a part of their party, but weren't a part of this, you know, this village. And they start freaking out and everyone's taking in like, what the hell's going on? Then the man does and he doesn't die. So someone with the hammer bashes his head in. So, you know, it's the way that some people react to it. You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous because this is, you know, you, you, you said it with Pele, like he was explaining like, well, what do you think? This is how we do it. But like, how do you think about how we would perceive if you put them in old folks home and that's how you like basically drop them off. And, him telling that to Danny, but like, really, the reason why Josh's okay with it, the reason why Christian's okay with it, is they're both trying to, and we'll talk about how Christian's a douche on just a subject by itself, but they're both trying to write about this thing, so it's not bothering them for their own convenience, and even Marx seems to be, you know, messed up from this. You know, this this causes dissension. You have the people that came with one of the other guys that's that's uh, cousins, I think, of Pele. Um, leave or they try to leave but we know that inevitably the boyfriend leaves and then the girlfriend finds out that the boyfriend left by himself doesn't really make any sense and then they're both out of the picture for the rest of the film but just the reactions just how you would be if you were there the shock and the fact that Danny's got to watch this after what's happened to her at the beginning of the film really just messes with you and uh, Luke I know that this affected you this is uh, I think I'm assuming one of the scenes that really messed with you uh, watching it. What, what, what did you think the first time you saw this? Oh, no. I mean, you guys have already alluded to the two scenes that really just did a number to me. I mean, the, the them synchronizing and screaming with her at the end is definitely just as, as you know, it, it did a number to me like this scene. I mean, and here again, too, you know, where he gives you these shots that you're going to stomach and you might not like it, but like, it's, it's, it's like, it makes the head in hereditary minuscule and nothing compared to everything you get from this scene. I mean, and it, and it makes, you know, and once you get the understanding and all of that, like, you know, you understand, like, you know, this is how 
their, their belief and all that and their cycle and all that. So it makes sense. But just like, man, it's so gripping how they go out. I mean, she, she straight like nose dives off that, that like cliff and just face right to the rock. And you're just like, Oh my. And then it gives you that shot where you just, you sit and you look at it for a good, like 15. And then here comes the husband who breaks his legs brutally brutally and of course he gives you a nice you know good good little what felt to me like it was 30 minutes of just me just looking at these things that are just you know really making me disturbed and you know not feeling well and all that and then just you know casually coming over and just giving him a hammer to the head I mean it's it's a it's a great scene it's definitely I mean he he he's really good at just you know getting your emotions going with all these like things and you don't see it coming too it's just like out of nowhere and like what you're saying Dana is like how you can relate to like everything she's been through already into the movie for her to be sitting through this and you know witnessing this like right there and all that and she's dealing with grief and all that and their grief and all that is completely different where you know the elders felt good and they you know they're fine with you know dying and everyone you know doesn't grieve it, you know, they're not sad and all that, like, you know, how we would, you know, grieve to death and all that. They're just, you know, they know one day that they'll have to do that that same thing and they feel like it's a privilege and all that and, like, almost like an honor, like, a you know, they're doing they're doing right for, you know, the colony and all that. But it's, yeah, that this scene was, it's it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> and I try yeah, to tell in, you, in I mean, scene... I, every, uh, I'll let you go. No, please finish. I was just going to say, every time I've told people to watch this movie, I always elude. I don't ever ruin it, but I'm like, in the middle of the movie, you're about to, like, it's just, it's going to turn you, and you, and your stomach is not going to like it, and that's what I try to just tell everyone. Yeah, and in that scene, there's just this incredible use of music um, where it's almost as if like um, you're zoning out and you can't hear anything else, which is kind of what is happening there. You don't really hear anybody talking. You just hear this, just, just the score that's being played over this as this woman is doing her ritual at the top of this cliff. And she almost stares down at Danny and makes eye contact with her as she's about to jump and they realize what's happening. And there's just, there's nothing better in a film and in, in a scary movie, and I can think of a few other times where it's been used by the silent screen, right? Where you see someone screaming, but you can't hear the scream coming out of their mouth. Um, I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie uh, World's Best Dad, I think it was, with Robin Williams, when uh, his son uh, killed himself son accidentally himself through, through uh, auto-asphyxiation. Uh, auto-asphyxiation. And there's and a scene where Robin Williams finds son and son. He drops to his knees silently, you know, screaming in terror because obviously his son is dead, but you can't hear the scream. It's just music. But anyway, um, an incredible scene, just unbelievably well shot. And, and that scene delivers one of my favorite lines in the entire movie that really ties in so much of it. I'm going to quote it. The, the kind of the leader there that's, that's leading all of this looks at Danny and says, lashing back at the inevitable. It corrupts the spirit. And I just think that is just, I wrote it down after I heard that line in theaters. I had to pull out my phone and write it down because it just resonated with me so much. Me so lashing much. back at the lashing inevitable, at the it inevitable. corrupts the spirit. Just haunting. Because it's like, you, and, and, it, and it perfectly summarizes their relationship. 
you know, they're, it is inevitable that they're not going to work out yet. They continue to try and, and, and make it work. And, and in terms of lashing back, it's like, they're upset. They're angry that it's not happening and it corrupts the spirit. It breaks them. So that, that line in itself is just, and she looks at it so in, she looks at Danny so intently and directs that line to her. It was just, uh, just such beautiful writing. So preparedness from Ari Aster to have that foresight to, to say that line that early in the movie with such conviction, just really special stuff. Amazing stuff. Let's, uh, let's have a short conversation about how Christian's an idiot. <laughs> uh, I think before, I mean, the relationship obviously with, with Danny, um, I mean, some of it, I don't know if you could say it's, it's his fault as far as her seeing this one girl that's a part of, you know, that's Pele's, I think either sister or cousin, but she kept on flirting with them, kicking him during dances and stuff like that, trying to get his attention. We all know what will happen later on. Um, but just, you know, that kind of when Danny probably wanted some comforting, he's like, oh, you want to be here by yourself? Okay, peace. And like, get the fuck out of there. You know, just arguments that he kind of forces upon when she wants to leave because of this, he kind of like, you know, plays it off like it's nothing like, you know, just bringing it back. Like I said, more being about what he's trying to uh, do as far as um, his paper. And then that itself, uh, basically with Josh telling him that he's going to do the same thing you know, for, for his thesis and Josh being like, are you fucking kidding me? Like giving him the option, like I'm going to either do it too, or we can collaborate together. Like, and how he gets mad and is like, that's so lazy. And just, that's just how it's going to be. Um, but Josh, I mean, he wouldn't really live much longer anyways. Uh, him and Will Poulter's character of Mark, you know, they both end up getting killed. You know, Mark pisses on a tree that they put, all the ashes of, of their past, uh, you know, people, the, the people that jumped off basically the mountain, he pisses all over it, pisses off the whole entire community, gets excluded out. We never see him. Also, same thing with, with Josh getting hit by a hammer because after getting shown the religious text of those people, he goes back in the middle of the night and tries to take pictures of all the pages and gets taken out. So we're seeing all this, and a lot of the stuff that's really scary in this movie, I would say, is the stuff you don't see. Um, I know a lot of people wanted to see a lot of that stuff. I don't need to. I can, I can, I don't know. I, I can put stuff together in my head and allow that to take form, I guess. But, um, yeah, just, uh, Christian kind of screws up a lot, Alex. I, I don't think he's meant for this world. Um, I don't know. It's like stuff's against him. No, he's sure. Um, but again, I think that there's, there's, you know, there's bad on both sides with Danny and Christian, you know, both of them are manipulative of one another and just have a broken relationship. It just ends up that, you know, Danny just um, is not as screwed up as Christian, you know, I mean, Christian's just totally checked out and, and shame on Danny though, for sticking around. It's like, she, she knew what she was doing. She was just, again, lashing back at the inevitable. Um, You know, she just didn't want to accept the fact that this was over and, they were in the relationship for all the wrong reasons. You know, she had her fa- her entire family is dead in such a tragic way. Um, and she has no one, you know, and, and, and Christian can't leave her. That's such a horrible thing to do when he was already thinking about it. So it's just all, it's just one of the most fucked up situations 
one can imagine, which is why it's such an amazing platform for a horror film. Um, again, is this movie even a horror movie? Is this just not about a really screwed up situation and how these characters are dealing with their relationship and how they're being manipulated by these external forces that may not be that out of the ordinary in, in the first place. Now, obviously, you, you, you take in, into account all of the killing that happened with all of the other people there with them, then that becomes a horror element. But still, it's just, uh, it's just such a unique platform for a horror film. It's just beautiful. Luke, same question before we talk about the big climax of the film. I don't know, I mean, it's it's just crazy, too. Like, if you were to skip out the beginning and kind of, like, like just watch the, the middle and all that, you don't see it coming to be a horror movie. I mean, the beginning's so gripping where you you already know. You, you jumped in, and you know it's about to be this, you know, intense, you know, scary movie, but then it, like, goes away from it. But there's a lot, and he, he fails so much. Like, I know both of them are like terrible in their own outright ways in the relationship too. And like, they don't know how to get out of it. But like, I just remember him failing just miserably, like more and more, like you saying the one, like he's definitely, he's sitting next to Danny and he's kind of like that girl's flirting with him and he's not like brushing it off. Like, yo, what the heck was that all about? Where he's like, yo, like keeps on like eyeing her and all that and watching. And he's just like, man, this is, you just know from that, like, it's not going to go well for him. And then I just felt like he was just at his ultimate douche thing when he thesis. And it's just like, come on, man. Like you just at that point, you're just like, you, you need to die. Like you the worst ways, like the worst ways, like you just, you are the, just, the you worst are the, of the two of the relationship. Like that was the ceiling like point for me where it was just like, man, this guy, even to his friends, he just, you know, he's just a shitty person and all that. Yeah, I have to agree with you, but the ending obviously did not work out for him. Um, I mean, I guess if you're going to go out, the, the you know beginning of it's not too horrible. But uh, So the last day of the last part of the festival and the last uh, crowning of the Make Queen happens, uh, you know, this would have Danny be a part of one thing, and she gets, you know, enthralled in this whole entire dance thing where the last person standing, the last girl standing, is the Make Queen. And obviously everyone's tripping like they have been throughout the whole entire thing. So just the concept of trying to deal with grief and tripping constantly throughout a whole entire course of several days, it's got to definitely uh, wane on your brain, I would say. But, you know, she's basically just completely out of it, participating in this. Uh, Christian has been already asked by, I forgot what the woman, the, the older woman, to basically take you know, the virginity of this, of this girl that keeps on flirting with him that chose him. And while that's getting set up, you can tell he's uncomfortable. Everyone's kind of staring at him. You had that one part where the guy where, you know, Danny finally gets uh, crowned as the May queen by being the last person up. Uh, They're all at a table. She's at the head of it. And he's asking a person like, why are you doing this? Blah, blah, blah. And he just claps into his ears and just sends his equilibrium off. And while she's doing some of the festival stuff, he goes to stuff where rose petals are put down into this one place where there's a group of women all naked uh, of all ages, harmonizing together and singing with this girl, the redhead that has been trying to get him throughout the whole entire thing, you know, her, their 
So he goes and does his thing. I'll just put it like that. Um, and starts, you know, having sex with her. And uh, Danny, you know, after all the ceremonies and Pele kissing her and just everything and just being so happy and uplifted, finally feeling wanted, finally feeling like, you know, she is a part of the family, something that she obviously lacks. She hears what's going on in there, sees what happens. Like we already talked about, the crying all at once in harmony, you know, just, just all together. And then the last that we find out about is burning the the big triangle that was – or the big pyramid, the yellow pyramid-shaped building that we saw at the beginning of the film that they said, don't worry about that. That's actually a temple that they burn uh, with sacrifices. So, you know, Pele's cousins that came from other places bringing the first two people from, from Britain uh, over that were already killed off camera. And then Mark uh, obviously is killed – uh, you know, just bringing all those bodies in there um, and Josh's body, uh, some of them stuffed, some of them not so much, and they do something really messed up with Christian. They put uh, this thing in him that completely paralyzes him. They, they cut the insides out of a bear, sew his face into the bear, and put him in the hut and ask Danny if oh, – well, before that, ask Danny if, if he should live or die, and she picks die. <laughs> Well, we, we don't know that, but we assume that because he gets put in this place and they burn it. So all of the sacrifices, including Pele's two cousins who sacrificed themselves, a part of it, burn up. I love how they gave them something, the two guys that are part of the village, the two cousins, to apparently you know numb them from the pain. But they caught fire and they also felt the pain, screaming and just agony. And she watches it. And after it goes down, you know, seeing Christian die and obviously all these people die, she's shown just in the light, and she has, she has a frown on her face, and it goes to a giant smile. And that's and what I, you're left I with. I want to point out, yep, I want to point out a few things about this end scene. Again, Jump one on. of the most captivating end, end moments of a movie, just, just so, just, I was just frozen in my seat once again. Um, you know, everything coming to a climax here, I do want to note that throughout the film, the uh, um, village people, whatever you want to call them, um, are expressing the pain of their own. Um, as those people are screaming in the burning building, they're all yeah. screaming. And just, there's just that scene of just them all just sharing the emotion. And what you'll notice is as Danny is going from this, you know, uh, uh, moment of dread into pure joy, you see the silhouette of the building burning behind her as her face is kind of shadowed over it. You see the two shots together. And, and to me, that's the imagery of her walls breaking down as that, as that building is burning and coming to and crumbling down. That is her walls breaking down as she finally smiles and has found her moment and her joy, her, you know, she's had that epiphany almost. And again, that was very intentional, incredible directing, um, just such an incredible moment of imagery. Uh, it's just, just one of those movies that, you know, at the ending, it just leaves you so invigorated in such an odd way. I would assume in the same way that people felt at the end of The Wicker Man, which is probably the closest relation to this film. Yes. Uh, we're looking at older movies. 
The original one, not the one with Nicolas Cage, because that gets a little bit weird. The bees! Anyways, uh, Luke, the ending of this movie, kind of give us your breakdown, and we'll get out of here. No, I mean, the ending is it's another one with the hereditary where they bring everything together. You're seeing, like, everything that's going on, her just completely shifting, and, you know, the burning of, you know, when they're all burning alive, that's, God, that scene, too. It's just everything at the end was a lot for me. This is the whole entire reason why I haven't gone back to watch it a second time. It's And it's not just, it's, it's everything he does in it, it's, it's it's the screaming, it's the crying, it's just the you're, just the agony and just everything, and it's just it's just a lot to take in, and it's it's really really well done. I mean, he does it again where he just ends the movie properly how he needs to do it, and it's a lot. I mean, I definitely will go back to watch this soon, but that's the ending is the the big reason. It's not a bad ending at all. Not like. Not that I'm, like, poo-pooing on it. It's just it, it was a lot for me, and that's the scary part where, you know, for me, where I got where it just – it just – it was weird, you know, trying to go to sleep that night and all that with just that ending and everything, and just, like, I, I, I could hear them crying in, in harmony in my brain for so long, and that was just – that's just a lot. <laughs> it's intense. Uh, just audio. Uh, just, yeah, I, I agree with you. Haunting imagery, haunting sounds. But uh, I'm getting the cue to go home. So uh, I think that was our, our conversation, which I think we had a really good one on, you know, cinema and horror and just talking about Ari Aster. I will say, like I said, I'm looking forward to his next film. And I don't have to necessarily see a horror film. I know that he's planning on not doing a horror film next. Um, like I said, I'm pretty sure in an interview he said that something about wanting to try comedy, which if he wants to go for that, I am completely down. I actually think that some of the stuff in Midsommar, com- compared to Hereditary, Will Poulter was put there to do comedic stuff, and some of it was kind of funny because of how uneasy it made you feel. But uh, just a brilliant director and great stuff. Uh, I'm going to let you guys say goodbye, just make it kind of quick. Um, Luke, uh, have a wonderful evening. Thank you for joining me. And the check will be in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me again. You know, I always enjoy coming out here to do these rants with you. And, um, you know, I appreciate that we got to really dive in on a, a genre that I've always loved. And I know all of us have always been a fan of the horror. And I just hope that people, you know, start to look at it as more than just these cheesy things where there's just really, really well done movies. And in my opinion, some of the best movies that have came out as of lately in the past couple of years. Agreed. Alex, say goodbye to everyone. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm looking forward to doing this again. I think the two next big horror movies, both A24 productions that we'll be talking about, are The Green Knight and St. Maud. So look out for those. And then Robert Eggers has got a new one coming out that's a Viking-themed movie with an incredible cast. So I can't wait until those come out so we can discuss. Thanks, Dane. Thanks, Luke. Thank you for joining us. And thank you both. I definitely had a uh, wonderful conversation. We'll definitely have to do this again very soon. Hope you guys enjoyed a nice episode of Dane Rants. Let the Geek Fives be with you, and peace out.